Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on U.S. Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Welcome to the October 2021 term of SCOTUScast. I'm your host, Nick Garfinkel, on behalf of the Faculty Division of the Federalist Society. On October 12th, the court heard oral argument in Cameron v. EMW Women's Surgical Center, a case which concerned whether a state attorney general vested with the power to defend state law should be permitted to intervene after a federal court of appeals invalidates a state statute when no other state actor will defend the law. Joining me today to discuss this argument and its implications is Elbert Lynn, partner and co-chair of the Issue and Appeals Practice at Hunt and Andrews Kurth. Mr. Lynn formerly served as the Solicitor General of West Virginia, law clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas, and is a graduate of Yale Law School. I'm going to talk today about Cameron versus EMW Women's Surgical Center, case number 20-601. The issue in this case is whether a state attorney general who is indisputably vested with the authority to defend state law on behalf of the state itself has the ability to intervene, not at the federal district court level, but in a federal court of appeals after that appellate court has invalidated a state law, and furthermore, when there is no other state official uh, that chooses to continue to defend the law. The specific law at issue here concerns certain abortion procedures, but as I've said, the constitutional arguments with respect to the law are not what's at issue here. The facts, however, are important to understanding the case, so let me start with those. Plaintiffs are a number of abortion providers and they sued several state officials in federal district court. Uh, of note are two. Uh, the first is the Kentucky Attorney General who at the time of the filing of the complaint was a Democrat and importantly during the life of this case would become the governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. The other state official uh, was the Kentucky Secretary uh, of the Cabinet of Health and Family Services, an appointed position uh, who answered to, at the time, a Republican governor. The Kentucky Attorney General got out of the case early. He said he didn't have the power to enforce the statute and ultimately filed a stipulation uh, that dismissed him from the case and in which uh, he agreed to be bound by, quote, any final judgment in this action, but in which he also reserved, quote, all rights, claims, and defenses that may be available to him. Uh, and in particular, uh, rights, claims, and defenses, quote, in any appeals arising out of this action. Those particular provisions are going to be important later. So the Secretary of Health and Family Services uh, took the lead in defending the law in the district court 
where he lost, uh, the district court found the law unconstitutional and enjoined it. The secretary then filed notice of appeal with the Sixth Circuit. And in another important fact uh, is that the Kentucky Attorney General did not. You will recall, again, that the Kentucky Attorney General, a Democrat at the time, the opposite party of the governor, had been dismissed. He did not file a notice of appeal. The appeal was then fully briefed, um, but before the case was argued, Kentucky had a statewide election. And the result of that election was that first, the Democratic Attorney General, who had been in the case but dismissed from the case, became the Democratic Governor and therefore had the power to appoint a new Secretary of Health and Family Services. The Attorney General's seat was filled by Daniel Cameron, the petitioner in this case, and a Republican. So the new governor appointed, the new governor, previously the Attorney General, appointed a new Secretary of Health and Family Services. Critically, however, that the Secretary continued to defend the law, at least for the time being. Indeed, he retained four lawyers from the office of the new Republican Attorney General. Those lawyers argued the case in the Sixth Circuit in January of 2020, and then the Sixth Circuit affirmed the judgment, two to one, over a dissent by Judge Bush. And then here's where it gets really interesting and what brings us, uh, brought, brought this matter to the Supreme Court. Within a week of the Sixth Circuit's decision, the Secretary told the Attorney General he would not be seeking rehearing uh, or filing a petition for certiorari. He did agree, however, not to oppose the Attorney General seeking to intervene on behalf of the Commonwealth of Kentucky to continue to defend the law. Two days later, the Attorney General did exactly that, moved to intervene, and then five days later, while the motion to intervene was still pending, it hadn't been ruled on yet by the Sixth Circuit, the Attorney General filed a petition for rehearing. Those dates are important, I emphasize them, because the Attorney General um, relies on them to show that he did not in inject any delay into this case. He filed a petition for rehearing on behalf of the Commonwealth of, of Kentucky 14 days after the decision of the Sixth Circuit. That is, of course, the usual time period that would have applied to the Secretary of Health and Family Services had the Secretary continued to defend the law. The Sixth Circuit ultimately denied intervention as untimely. The Sixth explained, uh, in effect, that it thought the Attorney General should have uh, figured out earlier that the Secretary of Health and Family Services would take the position that he ultimately took, and the Attorney General therefore should have sought to intervene earlier to protect the rights of the Commonwealth. The Sixth Circuit also concluded that there will be prejudice to the plaintiffs for a reason that is briefed but ultimately did not seem to interest to the Supreme Court. The Attorney General uh, sought rehearing on this denial of intervention. There had been a dissent as well, again, by Judge Bush, but the panel refused to allow it to be filed, and the Attorney General then sought cert on the question of intervention. So that brings us to the arguments in the briefs. The Attorney General's opening brief makes essentially two arguments. The first is that the uh, Commonwealth's, and, and you know any state, in this case it's the Commonwealth, uh, the Commonwealth's sovereign interest in defending its laws and its unique sovereign interest in deciding uh, who has the final say over the Commonwealth's defense of its laws should trump any of the other considerations, uh, discretionary considerations with respect to intervention. 
So you'll recall the Sixth Circuit said that the Attorney General was untimely here, but the Attorney General says that that gets the analysis wrong. Kentucky has the right to decide who has the final word um, as to the Commonwealth decision whether to continue to defend the law or not. And state law, the Kentucky Attorney General says, vests that ultimate say in the Attorney General. So if the Attorney General, on behalf of the Commonwealth, says that the Commonwealth still wants to defend this law, it should be permitted, and he, the Attorney General, on behalf of the Commonwealth, should be permitted to get into the case to pick up the baton, essentially, where the secretary, the previous representative of the state's interests, uh, had set it down. Commonwealth is the real party in interest here. The AG is endowed under state law with the power to have the final word as to the Commonwealth's position. So irrespective of whether the AG was untimely or not, he contends that he wasn't, he should have been allowed to intervene. That's argument one. The second argument is essentially that on the merits, the Sixth Circuit got the analysis wrong. And the two arguments are of note here. The Attorney General first says, as to timing, uh, the AG says, as I mentioned earlier, I wasn't late. Uh, I didn't know until after the decision was issued that the Secretary wasn't going to proceed. And then two days later, uh, the AG says he filed his motion to intervene. And then five days later, within the 14-day window, he filed the petition for rehearing. And so he didn't create any additional delay. And therefore, uh, the Sixth Circuit got the timeliness analysis wrong. He also points out that the Sixth Circuit, in his view, failed to give sufficient weight or really even acknowledge the fact that at that time in the spring of 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court was considering an abortion case, June Medical, that perhaps would have um, had some impact on the underlying merits in this case. EMW, in response, uh, also advances two arguments. Uh, one, on the merits of the Sixth Circuit's analysis, which I'll get to in a second, but a threshold argument that um, sort of uh, sidesteps the kind of bigger question that's presented here. Uh, EMW says, uh, look, there's, of course, and they acknowledge an important broader question about uh, the state's ability to continue defending a law if it chooses to do so. And when um, one representative of the state uh, decides to step aside, uh, there is an important question about what happens there and who has the right uh, to step in and should someone have the right to step in. But the EMW says that in this case, the Supreme Court doesn't have to reach that question. and Indeed, it shouldn't, given some unique circumstances here, and in particular, the fact that the Attorney General was initially named in this case uh, in his official capacity, and uh, as you will call from the facts that I discussed, took a voluntary, uh, negotiated a voluntary dismissal, agreed to be bound by the final judgment, and then did not appeal, did not file a notice of appeal on his own behalf uh, when the Sixth Circuit, I'm sorry, when the district court uh, decided the case. And so what EMW says is there is no jurisdiction here. The attorney general uh, was sued, was a party, failed to appeal, therefore does not have a right to continue to be in this case and can't use the intervention process to circumvent his own failure to file a notice of appeal. The uh, second argument that EMW raises is that on the merits, uh, they, he, they say that the Sixth Circuit got it right, that uh, as soon as the election happened, the Attorney General should have known that the secretary was, uh, the new secretary would take a different position because the new secretary would answer to the new governor, who was, uh, in fact, the old attorney general, um, and that it was well known 
that he um, uh, did not, you know, was not, did not intend to defend the law that was at issue here. Um, in reply, uh, the Attorney General reiterates some of his arguments, but he does come back with two arguments on the, the sort of new jurisdictional argument raised by EMW uh, uh, with two responses. The first is that the Attorney General says, yes, the, uh, the office of the Attorney General was named, the AG in his official capacity was named, but that's not the capacity in which I sought intervention now. Uh, the AG says, I'm seeking to intervene, or I sought to intervene in the Sixth Circuit on behalf of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, not on behalf of the Office of the Attorney General or as the Attorney General in my official capacity, but as an agent of and counsel for the Commonwealth itself. So it's a different entity. This is the two hats theory that was discussed, um, ultimately discussed at oral argument. Two hats theory is what Justice Kagan called it. And so uh, the AG says, there is no jurisdictional problem because I'm not trying to get back into the case as the attorney general. And his second argument is, if you look at the stipulation, the, the basis on which the attorney general exited the case in the first place, it actually barred the AG from filing a notice of appeal because it made him a non-party that um, didn't have the, the uh, ability to appeal. So that brings us to oral argument. Um, br broadly speaking, it seemed clear to me at least that uh, the Supreme Court seems inclined to rule in the state's favor on the broader question. Uh, Justice Breyer, I think, asked it most directly of the respondents, the plaintiffs in this case, and basically laid out the facts and said, look, the attorney general didn't know um, that the secretary wasn't going to continue to defend it. Uh, and you know, in that situation, shouldn't we um, allow the state to continue to defend if, if that's what it chooses to do. And uh, Breyer seemed to be concerned about, um, you know, the vagaries of elections and the fact that cases go for a long time. Uh, and that, you know, again, if the, the agent who's invested with the authority to make the final say for the state says that the state wants to continue to, defending this, to defend this law, shouldn't the state be permitted to do so? Excuse me, and a lot of other justices seem to weigh in um, sort of favorably on that point. So as a result, I think oral argument focused mostly on this new jurisdictional question that the plaintiffs and respondents here had injected into this case, whether under the unique facts of this case, the fact that the attorney general was previously in the case, was dismissed from the case, whether that uh, was going to have some effect on the outcome here specifically, perhaps would it bar the, you know, prevent the court from reaching the broader question, would it you know, affect the result for this particular case as opposed to the broader outcome? And it really boiled down to this distinction that Justice Kagan brought up between you know, what were the terms of the stipulation? Was the attorney general obligated to appeal? Uh, and then separately, you know, the AG's point that sort of irrespective of what the stipulation says, we are wearing two different hats here. On the one hand, the AG's office and the AG in his official capacity was in this case in the first place. But what we're trying to do here is intervene on behalf of the Commonwealth writ large. Justice Kagan seemed to have some trouble with the two hats theory. And as a former state solicitor general, it's something that I think is sort of intuitive to us and we certainly would have argued. But Justice Kagan raised and several other justices did too, an important point, which is that because of Ex parte Young and sovereign immunity, 
um, state officials sort of stand in the shoes of the Commonwealth. And so is it really fair to say that, you know, the attorney general in this case was capable of wearing two hats? Uh, he wasn't sued. The state itself, the Commonwealth, is not sued at the outset because it has sovereign immunity. Instead, under the Ex parte Young Doctrine, these individual um, uh, state officials were sued in their official capacity because that's how you get around the issue of sovereign immunity. And so, you know, what is really different here when the Commonwealth is trying to intervene later? Is it really a different hat? And it does raise questions about sovereign immunity and whether that intervention, um, you know, affirmative intervention as a defendant for purposes of continuing to defend the law, whether that constitutes a waiver of sovereign immunity. And there were there were sort of hints of questions as to, you know, how clear does that waiver have to be? How extensive is that waiver? Is it limited? Um, you know, the court didn't ask these questions, but there's all kinds of questions about, you know, if the Commonwealth is waiving its sovereign immunity, does that open it to attorney's fees? These were not answered at oral argument, but you could see them sort of under the surface uh, as the court was exploring the two hats theory. Perhaps because of that, those potential complications, some of the justices were really pressing on the specific language in the stipulation. Chief Justice Roberts asked about what final judgment really means. Justice Barrett kind of really pushed on this question of the reservation of rights, and perhaps the attorney general reserved specifically his right to intervene, even though he had um, you know, been dismissed from the case. So uh, it, it does seem to me, uh, and you know, you always are cautious about guessing at the outcome, but that the court is inclined to rule in the state's favor because these are, I think, troubling circumstances that a state would somehow be precluded from continuing to defend its law if the representative of the state who has the power to finally speak for the state, ultimately speak for the state, here the AG says, the state wants to continue defending the law. It does seem in that case that the justices are inclined to think that the state should have the ability to get into the case to do that. But what do they do about the unique circumstances here? Are they gonna go with the two hats theory? Are they gonna to try to read the stipulation narrowly? That I think is sort of anyone's guess. Um, at this point, but uh, that's where the argument focused and we'll just have to wait and see what the opinion says um, in terms of the specific facts of this case and how that affects the state, the court's ability to weigh in on the broader question. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUScast. SCOTUScast is a project of the Federalist Society, a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including SCOTUScast and Practice Group Podcasts, on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org multimedia. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot multimedia. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 